you're looking at a much broader um, use of psychiatry, which sadly has become more and more myopic, where in some places psychiatrists feel relegated to almost just prescribing chemicals. I'm Adam Hunt, and this is the Evolving Psychiatry Podcast, rethinking mental health through an evolutionary lens. Share it with the people who matter, like it if you like it, subscribe if you want to hear more. Paul St. John Smith is the founding member and current chair of the Evolutionary Psychiatry Special Interest Group of the Royal College of Psychiatrists in the UK. He is one of the editors on the Cambridge University Press volume on evolutionary psychiatry, which we'll be talking about today. Uh, he trained in Oxford and spent some time in the pharmaceutical industry um, and then spent 35 years as a general adult psychiatrist. Uh, he's published various articles on evolutionary psychiatry, uh, pharmacology, substance misuse, the placebo effect, many other things, uh, and, and used to be a teacher on evidence-based medicine for the college. So today we're talking about chapter 18, psychopharmacology and evolution. Uh, very interesting and important topic to psychiatrists because pharmaceuticals are basically the, the key treatment that are in the psychiatrist's hands. Uh, so as a as a person who's worked in the pharmaceutical industry and who's very well versed in the evolutionary literature, um, the, you, you go into a lot of details and how an evolutionary perspective uh, kind of enlightens our understanding of psychopharmacology in perhaps a different way to the normal sort of more proximate thinking. Um, so, so to you, what does an evolutionary approach kind of add, especially thinking about like the phylogenetic lineage, um, why these drugs might work, um, perhaps how we should be testing them, things like that. Well, thank you, Adam. It's, it's a fascinating area and it's mired in a, a degree of controversy about whether a drug would be used for treating mental disorders at all. Uh, and if, if so, where we use them. But you're, you're right, the, the phylogenetics is very interesting. And, and for those that don't know what that is, it means the, the, the development through long time for when we were uh, earlier species chronologically. And of course, one, one can look at this through looking at different species, in fact, even different kingdoms. And what became fascinating when I worked in the drug industry was how they tested the drugs both on uh, individual receptors, but also on different animals. And then also the, the realization that these chemicals affected so many things in the biological world. And as an adult psychiatrist uh, and uh, psychopharmacologist, we, we, we often do sort of uh, neuro uh, science investigations and we look at the the various uh, neurotransmitters and what they do and it becomes evident really that these chemicals especially the neurotransmitters are present in many many species and in fact in different kingdoms you find dopamine noradrenaline uh, uh, and adrenaline or uh, norepinephrine uh, and uh, serotonin in plants and bacteria. Not, not all organisms have all, all the neurochemicals. And it turns out that the basic neurochemicals like dopamine are found right throughout all the kingdoms as a, 
uh, a chemical transmitter. So they're not just neurotransmitters, or it, whether it's neurotransmitter in the central nervous system or peripheral nervous system of humans, but in all vertebrates, but in other creatures, invertebrates, and even in plants. And you start to think, well, what's going on here? And there's a, there's a wonderful paper, although it's very technical and very, it's almost a catalogue of these chemicals acting in other creatures by uh, a Russian doctor called Roshina. And we, we um, use Roshina as a source in our chapter quite a lot for the phylogenetics to start with. Um, and it really is an eye opener to see how ubiquitous these chemicals are. And it, it transpires that as organisms have become more complex since the Cambrian period, that actually there have been new neurotransmitters added but more's the point. It's not the not just the new neurotransmitters that have been added, um, because the basic ones, serotonin, dopamine, acetylcholine, remain, and they've been conserved, presumably for half a billion years. Um, but it's actually the receptors that have evolved, not the transmitters. Dopamine is still dopamine, mm -hmm. uh, and of course we actually have many other neurotransmitters in human beings that are not present in lower creatures and these would be the more human-based polypeptide transmitters which we don't go into in any great depth um, because to date they're of limited importance in psychiatry. So the chemicals we use um, tend to block dopamine or reuptake inhibitors for um, noradrenaline or 5-HT uh, serotonin. Uh, among other chemicals like lithium, which are less specific. And as I say, it's not an accident that these chemicals remain the principal. Well, Roshina calls them biomediators, the, the, the chemical communicators in humans. Um, and so in some respects, you know, we, we, have, uh, we have the vestiges of our archaic past in our brains still these chemicals which have been used and are still used by bacteria fungi plants invertebrates etc and of course that leads us on to animal testing because um, animals are used for testing drugs including psychotropic drugs at various levels including the um, the direct action on receptors but of course also for the more complex uh, reactions to behavior. Now, of course, psychopharmacology is the study of the effect of uh, drugs on thoughts, feelings or emotions and behavior as well, uh, which is rather different from what the chemicals do at the receptor level. Mm -hmm. And just as in the uh, discussions we had on the previous chapter, many plants have developed chemicals probably to protect them which interfere with these neurotransmitters in insects or bacteria or herbivores so um, botany has a lot of um, chemicals in it which act as uh, deterrents for uh, consumption so in other words these plants have um, not only the neurotransmitters in them, but antagonists and agonists and you know, chemicals which interfere with the signalling of higher creatures or different 
different herbivores, parasites. And of course, to a plant, a herbivore is a parasite. Mm. It, it, it's all just sense. eating it. Yeah, everything's just, just eating it. Yeah, I'm eating it. Yeah. Um, and of course, humans actually are, are, are symbiotic with these plants because we cultivate them and grow mm. them. And uh, again, there's uh, an overlap with the uh, chapter on substance misuse. Many of the plant drugs are actually misused, but there are many more uh, which can be used in everything from pain relief to mood changes, but also anti-cancer drugs uh, derived from plants and, of course, antibiotics. Mm. So pharmacology has this deep phylogenetic history, which is is sort of recognised because we test drugs on other animals. But of course, at a very basic level, dopamine is dopamine is dopamine. But what it does to a plant is, of course, very different to what it does to a human being. Mm -hmm. And so ultimately, even testing drugs on rodents or dogs or other primates is of limited value because our brain has evolved in complex ways over the last let's say 12 million years so that what dopamine does in a in a plant or, or what it does in a dog is very different to what it does in a human being and so blockade or antagonists have quite different effects and we we use animal models very usefully for screening drugs but they are limited right and, and that brings us on to the your question about how useful then are they in human beings under what circumstances mm, yeah especially for some of the disorders like schizophrenia or where you have these very seemingly specific human um yeah delusions it's it's hard to think of what a, what a delusional rat looks like well, the, the thing is with, with, with animals is you, you can spot things like anxiety, probably low mood, and probably some f sort of paranoid anxiety, over-sensitivity yeah. to things. Yeah. But without language, it's very hard to know what's going on for, to, to access what creatures are, for want of a better word, thinking. Right. And how analogous behaviours are is very debatable. So when uh, uh, an organism, a rat or a dog or a, uh, even a primate behaves in a given way, is that analogous to certain forms of mental illness? So in certain forms of animal testing, you get, you know, overactivity of animals being reduced by dopamine blockers like haloperidol, chlorpromazine or alanzapine or whatever you're choosing. Is that the same as treating mania? Mm, yeah. You know, stimulating or sedating or blocking you know various chemicals in animals are the behaviors homologous to those behaviors in humans now of course we do clinical trials in humans but many of them use rating scales which are I'm tempted to say quite naive or quite basic uh, and the philosophers would have a field day with looking at individual items as to what they actually mean when people are filling them in and are people feeling you know when they say have you reduced your suicidality i mean that's really complicated right you know you've got a score of one to four on suicidal and it's on a rating scale for depression but also you've got a scale of let's say um something like how you're sleeping of one to four 
and the rating scale gets used as a scale for um, saying whether these drugs are working in human beings. But the scales are adding up together as if they're interval or continuous data. But it's really a reduction of three problems with sleeping, the same as a reduction of three with problems with feeling suicidal. And I, I can't imagine that anybody thinks they're commensurable. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, this. so this is kind of leading then, on to my next but, question. Um, of, of the, the complexity of these psychiatric disorders, something like depression has so many different factors and you can kind of add up to a, a diagnosis of depression with very different symptoms. Um, so, so how does a, an evolutionary approach help kind of pass out the complexity we see, the different, the heterogeneous, the different individuals and how they're experiencing their depression or their anxiety or even schizophrenia or, um, you know, it, evolution, can an, ev can an evolutionary approach kind of inform our treatment with pharmaceuticals in these cases is there anything is there anything we can say here apart from that you know there's a lot of a lot of different people experiencing quite different symptoms that are kind of being clustered together perhaps inappropriately well we would hope so but this needs testing scientifically of course um, but the problem is with this one always has to use large groups for testing scientifically um, rather than individual testimonials but to the individual, their testimonial is very important, of course. Just because something works in a big group doesn't mean it works for an in individual. Um, and because there are lots of different types of depression, one has to look at the actual picture of an individual's depression. So for somebody who's sleeping very, very badly, you might wish to give them an antidepressant that helps them sleep rather than activates them. And of course, we, we do find this, some antidepressants are quite activating. And for people that are agitated or anxious, they can become much more agitated and even frankly suicidal. So you actually are causing problems that you didn't anticipate. And people have found this with some of the SSRIs, that people actually become highly aroused and quite suicidal when they weren't before, which is an unfortunate reaction. And, and of course, you also see things like taking people who are very psychomotor retarded or withdrawn, becoming activated and acting on their suicidality, which they weren't before. Um, so they actually have the energy to, to do things to themselves that they wouldn't have done when they're uh, very withdrawn and, uh, as I say, psychomotor retarded. So you've got to be very careful with the pharmacology and monitor what's going on on an individual basis. The word antidepressant is interesting because really and truly, that's a marketing name. They're not antidepressants. There's no, there's no such one thing as an antidepressant. It's just, uh, you know, like saying there's an uh, aircraft or a car. Uh, you know sort of what it is, but they, they can be very, very different. In fact, that's even probably a bad analogy, it's like saying that it's a plant or something. I mean, it just mm. almost doesn't tell you anything about the individual chemical um, because they're, they're so varied in their chemical uh, activity. Uh, but they're called antidepressants probably as a result of the recent history. I mean, the the tricyclics were discovered in the first half of the 20th century and the uh, SSRI somewhat later uh, and the monoamine oxidase inhibitors were found to have an antidepressant effect in certain um, people that had tuberculosis so people that were depressed that had TB took I think it was um, 
hypronized or isonized. I can never remember which one, which way around it is. I think it's hypronized. And people that had been very, very low became much more cheerful. Now, some people say, was that because they no longer had TB? Right. Or was it because there was a chemical effect to the monoamine oxidase inhibitor? But from, from there came a whole range of monoamine oxidase inhibitors. And also people found that tricyclics, which were somewhat safer because they didn't have a cheese effect, also had this effect on people with depression. And for some people, these drugs are transformative. I've seen people with terrible depression, with all sorts of psychotherapy and social treatments being tried. You know, they get new houses, they sort their marriage out uh, and all sorts of things. But they're as miserable as sin and they have an antidepressant and they get so much better. And things were falling apart, their marriage and their job and everything was falling apart because they were depressed. Now, of course, this is this suggests a linear cause and effect. They were depressed, which caused them to lose their job and their marriage but of course it works the other way around as well people lose their job and their marriage falls through and they become depressed someone has to be very careful of cause and effect and how one's intervening with these drugs now from an evolutionary point of view if you're going to say what is successful well what is successful if you were to take a pure evolutionary approach is if the person survives reproduces and brings their children up to adulthood where they themselves can reproduce so a clinical trial looking at whether these drugs are effective evolutionarily is going to take a while multiple generations yeah you'd have to go through generations wouldn't you right um but of course some of these drugs do have quite strong psychosexual effects so for instance the ssris can cause impotence or anorgasmia loss of sexual drive whereas sometimes um, things like monoamine oxidase inhibitors may produce hypomania with hypersexuality. Hmm. Now, that might be good for reproduction, but it's not necessarily good for the family. Right. Um, hmm. But also sometimes monoamine oxidase inhibitors actually cause ejaculatory failure. So you have hypersexuality, but with failure of ejaculation. So these things are very complicated. So taking a simplistic evolutionary model probably wouldn't tell you very much. And to do the study as to whether people treated with antidepressants have more successful lives and bring more children into the future, mm. which is what an evolutionary success would look like. Yeah. Th these would be almost impossible to run and probably unethical. And not even perhaps desirable. It's not like we value, uh, you know, having children as the the highest good in society. What we, we what we're trying to do with antidepressants is just make people feel better, right? So, um, well, the trouble is with making people feel better. That's great, so long as they do better. Mm. There's always a risk in psychiatry of making people feel better when the life is deteriorating. Right. Yeah. And this is. The problem with addictive drugs, of course, people yeah. take addictive drugs, which include psychotropic drugs. Uh, for instance, we, this was discovered for um, diazepam and the benzodiazepines, that, that people would feel reasonably okay and they'd carry on taking these things in ever-increasing amounts whilst life was passing them by or getting worse. And the same applies to heroin, which is one of the reasons... Um, you know, these things are dangerous. It's not just the direct chemical effect on their cells... Mm. which you know things like 
nicotine causing uh, or smoking causing cancer, but it's also the damage to their signalling behaviour to the individual and to those around them that this causes. And we have to be very mindful of this in psychopharmacology, just making people feel better so that they carry on doing destructive things or failing to address destructive things going on in their lives. So I think drugs are a useful tool in, indeed in the same way that opiates are a useful tool in pain management, but they're not the be all and end all. Mm. Failing to deal with broken bones or other pathology and just giving ever greater amounts of pain killing would be seen as medical malpractice. Right. Uh, and the same applies in psychiatry, just giving chemicals uh, without looking at the effect on the behaviour of people uh, in, in the greater sense uh, is probably not good practice. Um, luckily, the antidepressants are not addictive in the same way as heroin or nicotine, although there are problems with discontinuation, which yeah. have it, their own issues. Uh, so we have to be very mindful. Are, are we doing people a favour by filling them up with these chemicals? And as I say, I've seen some people where other forms of therapy haven't touched them at all, and antidepressants are crucial. And I've seen other times when we've given people placebos where nothing happens they, they you know they've really needed the antidepressant and i've seen times when people have been given placebos and they've got better and of course there are many people for which psychotherapy or some form of psychosocial intervention doesn't require drug use so my feeling is the use of drug use should be there to enable psychosocial uh, readjustment or therapies to occur um, just regarding depression, and we're talking about depression here, as an illness on its own and a chemical imbalance with no other interactions with the world uh, mm. is probably a, a very poor model of psychiatry, which has possibly been somewhat prevalent in those that don't think about it very deeply right. uh, for a long while. But of course, a lot of people do think about it deeply, and this is probably why we have such a, a strong... Uh, anti or critical psychiatry movement that object to the unthinking handing out of these drugs in large quantities without thoughts about how they're monitored not not just from whether you get a rash sort of side effects but from the impact on people's lives right so so this is um, a nice lead on to my my final question which is how an evolutionary approach say 20 years down the line everyone kind of has some basic understanding of evolutionary psychiatry and recognizes that we're dealing with evolved beings and that you know psychopharmacology is being prescribed to um evolved beings um you know what what do you think an evolutionary approach does uh, is it is it sort of a middle way between the anti-psychiatry and then the kind of blind biological psychiatry um you know in your experience as a practitioner and and you know what you know about evolutionary psychiatry uh, yeah what do you think we add to to psychopharmacology well i think there has been this huge divide that you mentioned between anti-psychiatry and as you call it blind biological psychiatry although i think all psychiatry is biological at one level it's when you only look at the neurotransmitters as, as if they are the problem in mm. themselves blinkered biological psychiatry might be a better uh, um, well yes but i mean there is this the, these extremes we're talking extremes here we're not right talking yes like most practical psychiatrists uh most people and, and this leads on to your chapter really uh, uh on the biopsychosocial model 
um, we actually look at what it is that makes a human life uh, and a human brain function and what it's there for and when things are going wrong how you need to intervene and i think yes it does reinforce the biopsychosocial model you actually need to address all the domains uh, at different times in different people for different reasons mm -hmm. but of course you know when you get somebody who's incredibly psychotic and you give them dopamine blockade uh, via, um, you know, catiapine or aripiprazole or something like that uh, in the old days, haloperidol or chlorpromazine. The goal was not to, well, it probably started off as to cure schizophrenia, but you don't cure schizophrenia. You don't cure psychosis. You may stop an episode of psychosis. And then what you have to do is look at why people are becoming psychotic. Maybe quite often it's drug abuse, but there's loads of other reasons as well in, you know, social models of the precipitation of psychosis uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, and you're looking at a much broader um, use of psychiatry, which sadly has become more and more myopic since the problems with uh, the credit crunch and recession in 2008, 9, 10, and so on, where in some places psychiatrists feel relegated to almost just prescribing chemicals mm. at the whim of teams, you know, and I'm sure most of my colleagues don't just prescribe because, you know, um, their colleagues have said, all right, we need an antipsychotic here, will you just sign here? Uh, and I'm sure they don't do that, that would not be good practice. But we need to be grounded in the other areas as to why people are becoming ill and how to keep them well. And if you look at the Royal College website about, you know, guidance on antipsychotics, for instance, very broadly psychosocial treatments are mentioned, as with all the illnesses, it's hugely emphasised. But what we're saying from an evolutionary point of view, this is not just a political or pragmatic approach there's good biological reasons why these things must be done and that simplistic pharmacological management without any thought about what you're doing with that and how long you should treat people with antipsychotics but certainly antidepressants as well you know and how do you monitor them how do you monitor success is it just mood or psychosis or are there other things in their lives you need to look at so I think we try and produce a much broader model. We're not anti-pharmacology, but equally we're not, I think your term, blind pharmacologist either. Yes, right. And I, I think the important thing is to say that both sides have uh, the biological, the, uh, the reductionist biological, if you like, rather than blind. The reductionist biological has its importance but the psychosocial is massively important and all three need to be connected meaningfully not just by some sort of political wrangling but by coherent theories that explain how they work and that's where i think evolution comes in it helps us formulate coherent theories about these things we're not there yet this is still a discipline in its infancy there are trials to be done there's much more thinking to be done. But the actual approach, the way of starting to think this way is what we're advocating in this volume and in these chapters. Just stop and think about these things. And where does that lead us in our future practice? 
the, 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 this book is not a book telling you how to manage schizophrenia here and now. Mm. You know, we're, we're, we're not trying to do that. We're looking at how we should think about these illnesses and treatments. And we're trying to connect the, the fundamental the science. Yeah, yeah. Trying to connect the fundamental In science. In that sense, it's the... a fundamental but applied science. Right. Um, uh, it's not, I mean, the, the neurochemistry of what dopamine does at a cellular level is a basic science, and that is very reductionist. Um, but we're, we're an applied science and looking at this as well as the clinical science. Uh, but I, I would not recommend anybody to start treatments based on purely an evolutionary theory. Right. Um, we have to have good clinical practice. And, I mean, uh, there are there are no treatment recommendations as yet, so it'd be very hard to um, it'd be very hard to to do that. But yeah, I mean, that's something we can look forward to in the future. Um, I think. I think, I think what we're talking about here is a perspective right. rather than strict guidelines, which would not be a good thing to produce at this stage. It's a way of looking at things and illuminating what we're doing right yeah yeah and 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 may it um, be successful this book was an excellent step forward in that regards thank, thank you, you for organizing it paul it was, it was it's a really great read anyone coming into the field um will will love it i'm sure it's it's really really powerful and your chapters are both excellent so thank you so much for for joining me today and i look forward to the future